Please pray with me. The scripture we heard, Lord, says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and he preached. Lord, I pray this morning that the word of God would come to Ben, the son of Benjamin, and that I would be given utterance today. Pray for the anointing you gave John. I pray for the anointing on your people that you gave those who came to hear John, that their hearts were open to cry out, what should we do? And they acted on the word that John preached. Lord, we know that all of this activity, whether it's the preaching or the receiving of the word, doesn't come from us. It is a gift of your spirit by grace. And so we give you the honor and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You brood of vipers. Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's not exactly the kind of words we expect to hear this time of year. I love what it says uh, in Luke chapter 3 as it comes to the end of that text that we just heard. And it says, um, uh, John is preaching. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news <laughs> to the people. It doesn't sound like good news, but it really is good news. And it's not the words we expect to hear this time of year. But if we are to listen to John the baptizer as we're supposed to do every time this year during Advent, we are going to hear that confrontational language. It is unavoidable. And not as it, only is it unavoidable, it's necessary and it really is a blessing when we take it to heart. And it was for those people, for after 500 years of silence, the word of God comes again to a prophet in the desert. And like rain after a long drought, God's word is poured out on the ground, the dry ground of the hearts of the people. And so it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 4, as it is written in the, words, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John the Baptist comes. He's, like, he's a prophet like Elijah, and he appears with this message. This is his message. Get ready. The Lord is coming. The king is on his way. Things are about to change. God is about to do something in your lifetime he has never done before. He is coming to his people. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He is in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And things are going to change when he comes because the powers of sin and death and hell will be confronted and they will be overthrown. Malachi said it. We heard it read this morning. Malachi 3. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. John says, get ready. Be ready to meet him. That's what this whole season of Advent is about. It's about preparing to meet Emmanuel, getting ready to encounter God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. And John had a very simple message on how we are to prepare for the coming of this king, this Emmanuel who is coming. 
He preached that being prepared to encounter the presence of the living God is very simple. It begins with this, repent. It begins with repentance. So whatever you may have heard to the contrary, and actually there was a wonderful video that was produced, like two minutes on what Advent is all about, and I almost put it up on the church's website, in our, our feed on the website, but they had one mistake in it, just one tiny little mistake, and it says, you know, Advent is not a season of repentance, it's a season of hopeful expectation, joyful expectation. Well, it is indeed, it is indeed a season of expectation. But it is also about repentance because I want, to, I want you to know something, folks. If I know like, oh, wow, 3 o'clock this afternoon, Jesus is coming back, I'm going to be repenting of some things. Things I haven't thought about repenting about are going to come to mind if Jesus is coming again this afternoon. Repentance is indeed how we prepare for the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> but we have some problems with that whole concept, that whole idea of repentance. We've actually got, uh, fortunately for me, it's three points. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's going to be easy for me to preach. We really do. We have about three different problems with this whole concept because, first of all, the first problem we have, there's a general misunderstanding, a general misunderstanding. So it's, a, it's really a problem of the definition of what repentance is. We have a problem of general misunderstanding about exactly what repentance is. And then, once we have uh, uh, dealt with that, we also have a problem about what we, from what do you and I need to repent? So we have a problem of definition. We have a problem of information. But finally, we have a problem of the will when it comes to repentance. Because, and it goes like this. Once we know what we're supposed to be repenting from, if you're like me, the problem is, well, you really don't want to do it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I was enjoying this just like I was. And if we do decide we want to do it, we often lack the ability to repent. And so that's what I want us to look at from what John preached about in his, this inaugural sermon that he preaches in Luke chapter 3 as he prepares the people for the coming of Jesus. So how do we deal with that definition problem? <clears throat> well, the most common misunderstanding we have about repentance is that, listen, that it mostly deals with feeling sad are guilty, sad or guilty, about something that we have done wrong. If I am feeling miserable about, miserable about something bad I've done, then I must be, de facto, I must be repenting. But that is actually incorrect, because while sorrow and guilt and contrition are definitely appropriate emotions to have when we do wrong, they and of themselves are not what repentance is. There's also kind of a new twist to that, this just feeling sad about something, just, just feeling emotionally bad about a wrong we've done is not repentance. There's a new way of, of being confused about this as well. It's, listen this, listen to this. It's talking about the bad things that we have done to get them off our chest. That we think that that's repentance. It's like confession of sin, but it, go, it does not involve a, any requirement for change. For altering our deep sinful patterns. This, this is self-revelation without change as opposed to how in the exhortation before Holy Communion, and by the way, we generally are supposed to read this at the beginning of Advent and in the beginning of Lent. We didn't do it this year because I, was, I didn't want to add that extra 10 minutes uh, to, the, to the service, but I will at some point. You'll hear it. But in that exhortation before Holy Communion, it says in the Book of Common Prayer, 
to confess yourselves to Almighty God, listen, with full purpose of amendment of life. So when we see on the chat shows that come on in the afternoon, I don't even know if Oprah is still on. I, I, I see her face everywhere. I guess she still is. Where people talk about the bad things they've done, but there's no real amendment of life. That is merely exhibitionism masquerading as confession. It is exhibitionism masquerading as confession. It's actually a form of narcissism. And now it's happening on the web with sites like PostSecret, which has now been around, it's hard to believe, for 10 years. PostSecret.com. PostSecret.com is the largest advertisement-free blog. This is the largest blog, most visited blog on the entire interwebs. No, I know it's internet. It's okay. Writing a while back, uh, Ned Barnett talked about this. He said they show up every Sunday like penitent churchgoers, bearing guilt, regret, or worry, seeking the release of confessing before a presence they cannot see. They're not churchgoers. They are postcards sent anonymously to a man named Frank Warren. He gets them by the thousands. Every Sunday, he presents those he finds most compelling on his website, postsecret.com. The cards are usually artfully designed with a photo or a drawing. The wording, often cut and pasted like a ransom note, is sometimes just as blunt and urgent. A few of the revelations are hopeful and grateful. Some are wry and funny. Most are dark. And since the site went up in 2005, it has drawn more than 500 million visits. Brothers and sisters, that's catharsis. But catharsis without correction is not repentance. Repentance does not just mean saying, I have sinned. In the Old Testament, there were four men who said, I have sinned. And in the New Testament, there was one man who said, I have sinned. Said that exact same thing. In the Old Testament, it was Pharaoh, Balaam, Achan, and King Saul. In the New Testament, it was Judas. They all said, I have sinned, but none of them meant it. It was confession without correction. Against that view of what repentance is, that false definition, John the baptizer cries out this, produce fruit in keeping, do acts that are consistent with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, hey, we have Abraham as our father. Let me tell you something. God can make children for Abraham out of those rocks. You need to repent and do the works that are consistent with it. That's how he taught. I know he did. You know, the primary Old Testament term for sin is het. We would transliterate it, H-E-T. And it literally means to walk on the wrong path or to walk in the wrong direction. The term that's usually translated repent in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shub, which means to turn around or to change direction. So true repentance involves a change in the actions of our life. Now, some of you know that I like to walk on the Appalachian Trail, and please pray that I get all healed up from this past summer so that I can do it again next year. I'd like to do that some more. 
Uh, I have taken uh, my middle daughter a couple of times on the Appalachian Trail. Her name is Katie. She is, she is my favorite hiking companion. She is a very low-maintenance hiker. She doesn't really ever complain about, you know, how hard it is. Uh, it doesn't, you know, in the shelters, you, you, unfortunately, if, you're, if this weirds you out, you don't need to stay in a shelter. Mice will run across you in the middle of the night. Uh, I was actually, this past summer, I was in my sleeping bag, and I felt one just running up and down laterally on me. And I said, oh, my gosh, it's a mouse. And I was with my best friend who was a special forces colonel, full colonel in the special forces, okay? And, uh, and so I'm asleep. The mouse is running up and down on me, and um, I feel him. And so I just take my sleeping bag, take my hand, and I just flip it like that. And the mouse goes spiraling away. What I didn't realize is it landed on my buddy, this is about 3 o'clock in the morning. This colonel and the special forces did not go back to sleep all night long. It just weirded him out that much. I was there to, you know, hold his hand, make him feel better a little bit. But Katie, that doesn't bother her. She just braids her hair to keep the mice from getting in her hair. And, uh, but the first time we went out on a hike, um, we were hiking uh, near Watauga Lake. And we, we were on the trail, and she does what a lot of people will do when they're hiking, is she started to watch her feet like that when you're hiking. You get tired, you start to watch your feet. You're supposed to be looking for the blazes. The blazes are white, painted stripes, two inches wide, six inches long, painted on trees usually, uh, you know, within sight of each other most of the time, especially when the trail is hard to, to make out. But she's watching her feet, and so she just kind of goes where her feet, she sees a path, she doesn't realize where she is, she just keeps walking on that path. She has taken a detour onto a game trail, uh, which is not a path you want to be walking on. And so after a while, the trail goes away, and she's in the woods, and she's lost, and she doesn't realize, I mean, she's as lost as an Easter egg, y'all. She's lost, plum lost. And, and so well, what does she do? She's taken the wrong path. So what does she do? She turns around, and she goes walking the other way. Now listen, I'm in the shelter by this point, and I don't see Katie. I don't see Katie. I don't see Katie. Um, and, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she should be here by now. So I go down the path the other way looking for her, and I'm, I don't know if you realize this or not, but I, I'm, I can actually am pretty loud. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm hollering, hollering for Katie, Katie. I'm hollering for my daughter. And, uh, and she has turned around and started coming back up the path looking for the blazes. And listen, she hears her father's heart, and she turns around and comes home. That's what repentance is. We hear God's voice calling us back to the right path. And then we turn around and we come back to the Father. That's genuine repentance. Repentance always involves action. It's not just feeling. It's not just confession. There's always action. And once we do begin that process, we also need to have the right information about what we're supposed to be repenting from. I don't know if you have noticed this lately, but there is a world out there trying to make us feel guilty about all the wrong things. There are two poles of, uh, I think, um, uh, toxic guilt. Guilt, this, uh, two, two poles of things that are trying to make us feel guilty, but they're not the things that God would be calling us from repentance from. On one end of the spectrum, there is legalism. That is the, the idea that I have to perform certain good works, which are man-made usually. You know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go out with girls that do. You know, so there's these man-made, that really is, or my, my grandmama said this, lips that touch wine shall never touch mine. 
And I was thinking, that sounds like a good deal to me. So, but, so we have these, these man-made rules and regulations that we feel like we have to accomplish in order to make God like us. And that's legalism. Folks, God loves you infinitely right now. You don't have to do anything performance-wise to make him love you. He already does love you. And so we, many of us are burdened by these, this incredible, it's like what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You tie up burdens on men's backs so that you will not lift a finger to lift yourselves. And if you do make a proselyte, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. These burdens that we get tied down with that don't have anything to do with God's word. And that's one end of the spectrum. But I don't know if you've noticed this other end of the spectrum. It's all of the, it's the, uh, it's the, the pundits, the talking head class, and a lot of celebrities who are telling us to feel guilty about things that really maybe we should be concerned about but not really feel that guilty about. And here's what I've noticed about that. Listen. A lot of the things that are, are huge sort of global causes in, with, uh, with the talking head class and with the celebrity, you know, whatever, whatever cause du jour a celebrity might be on, uh, what I've noticed about these is that these tend to be very large, very vague problems that may indeed be something we should be concerned about, but actually I have no, listen, I have no personal ability to change it. Here's what happens is that I can put on the ribbon or I can hashtag the right thing stating my right ideological view, ideological view about something and then I can feel very self-congratulatory. I, I am thinking the right way about, I don't know, uh, saving the African shrew or whatever. You know, you know, they're really, actually, it's the elephant shrew. It does live in Africa, and I like them. I don't think they need saving, but if they did, you know, hashtag shrew, shrew love. <laughs> love, shrew love. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so what happens is this. Listen, we think that we're being called. I'm sorry, I'm losing Father Keith. Uh, he just left the building. So we think we've actually made some sort of moral change by having this hashtag activism. But all we've done is allowed ourselves to feel self-righteous and self-congratulatory. And I've noticed this, is that the people who may be the loudest about these very vague, large causes want to have nothing to do when their own personal lifestyle is challenged where something could be affected by me. It's a way of excusing myself from that kind of change. John the Baptist won't let us get away with either of those poles of legalism on one side or sort of hashtag activism on, another, on the other end. So when the people came to him, they said, what should we do then? And John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. John says, stop hoarding the good things God has given you. Don't hashtag about how you care about the poor. Give your stuff to the poor. Share with those who have nothing. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, 
What should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to do, he told them. Stop being corrupt government officials who are using their privilege and the system to make money off of other people's misery. Take only what you may take legally and ethically. And we don't have those kind of tax collectors, but we do have people today who have privileges and authority from the government and they trade on other people's misery to enrich themselves. Then some soldiers asked him, this would be kind of like the police of their day. They served both purposes, both military and police uh, functions. It's amazing that we do have Roman soldiers coming to John the Baptist. What should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Stop using your authority. Stop using your weapons. Stop using your strength to oppress others and to make financial gain from it. Be content with your pay. This is one of the reasons that God has given us the Torah, the law. We need it. We need it, for, we need it as a mirror to see ourselves as we truly are. We need to see God's character as revealed in the law. We see who, the kind of God we serve in the law. But we also need it as a map, as a guide, so that we know when we are on the wrong path, this map says, oh, I'm on the wrong path. I should be on this other path. That's why we have the Ten Commandments, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall, not, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those are the things that God calls us to repentance by, not hashtags and not legalism. But even if we have the right information, even if we have the right definition, we still have a problem with repentance, and it has to do with the will. Left to ourselves, we just don't want to do it. And that's why we need John the Baptist to come blazing out of the desert, scorching our ears with the, with the Word of God and commanding repentance. We demonstrate our reluctance to repent by doing a couple of things. Here's, and here's how we, we avoid actually repenting a lot of times. We justify and we rationalize our sin. Now, before we get into that, I want to say something. Once we do justify and rationalize our sin and then we repeat it, we begin the process of desensitizing ourselves to it. Um, this is one of the most pernicious things about pornography is that what happens when people view pornography is that it begins to desensitize them to the wickedness that they are perpetrating because they're not just doing something bad in their own mind and heart. You are, in, you are enabling 
the exploitation of human beings who are created in the image of God. You're part of a system that is bent on defacing, and, and if it were possible, but it's not, destroying the image of God in someone else. And it begins to desensitize as soon as we rationalize it. It's like that with any sin we commit. And it begins with justification and rationalization of our sin. I'm not as bad. I'm not that bad compared to others. Well, great. But except our standard isn't others. Our standard is a holy God. How are you matching up to the holiness of God? There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. None of us meet that standard. This is why, you know, um, I think it was Frances McNutt who was in, she was in England a while back, and uh, Scott and Frances McNutt, is it, what, what's, this, is it, what's, her, what's her husband's name? Or is, Frances is the husband, and she is Judith. Judith, thank you. So it was Judith McNutt, I'm sorry. Uh, I hope the McNutts aren't listening. <clears throat> um, but Judith was in England, and, uh, and she went to morning and evening prayer one day. She began at morning prayer, and, uh, and the beautiful 1662 Book of Common Prayer, all that great contrite language in it. And, and then, she, she, wow, that was so meaningful, the Word of God and the repentance that we did. And then that afternoon, she went back like 4 o'clock in the afternoon and did evening prayer because it was so good the first time. And doggone it, if they weren't repenting all over again. She said, what are these, what are these Anglicans getting up to during the day? Well, here's the reality, folks, is that we are desperately wicked in our hearts. We need to be. I'm not, I'm not the one that said that was Jeremiah. The heart is de- desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? We need to be brought back again and again and again to the fact that we have a holy God and we are sinful people and we need to repent. The rationalization, well, times have changed. That just doesn't apply anymore. And I hear it all the time. Um, uh, Father Keith was telling me about a young couple who used to go to this church, and, uh, and he's been following up with them and following them, I guess, on, on the book of the face. And, uh, but, you know, these people sat under his teaching and my teaching for years, and they have just gone with the culture on so many things. They are celebrating things that they clearly were told, no, that is not God's will for humanity. That does not lend itself to human flourishing ultimately. But for them, the times have changed. That doesn't apply anymore. And they'll make a lot of money. They'll be very successful and they'll have a lot of friends. But they'll also have to stand before the living God one day as well. And that God says in Malachi chapter 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. I do not. God has not changed his mind on what he calls sin. Well, that's Old Testament. Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus hasn't changed his mind either. Well, if Jesus was around today, he would feel... He is around today. (laughs) We believe he's raised from the dead and ruling on high. He hasn't changed and he won't change. Well, the Bible is outdated. Just last Sunday, we heard, though, from Jesus' own lips, Luke chapter 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The Word of God stands forever. Yes, culture changes around us. There is cultural change. 
We will once again and are becoming now a prophetic minority within our culture. But God's word does not change. The bottom line to all this rationalization and self-justification is that we really don't believe, and here's the deal, is if I can say, well, that doesn't apply anymore, here's what I'm really saying is this. I really don't believe there's a living God. I don't believe there's a God that I will stand before on judgment day. I don't believe that stuff. It made me feel good. It was my spiritual Prozac. I liked the people I was hanging out with. We had some nice cover dish. We all went out to eat together, and we played, you know, Frisbee golf or whatever. But I don't really believe that there is a just ruling God that I will stand before on the day of judgment. Because if I did, I wouldn't say things like that. I wouldn't do things like that. And he has a claim over our lives. When we rationalize, we are living at worst as atheists. At best, we are trading in cheap grace. And we know that quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of us have read from the cost of discipleship, a man who did pay the cost of discipleship. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follow him. Repentance means acting like it means acting on the truth that God is alive and real. It is living like God is real. A.W. Tozer, great writer on holiness, wonderful devotional writer, mid-20th century. God will take nine steps towards us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent but he cannot do our repenting for us. God won't repent for us. He will give us the inclination, but he calls on us for that action. In the essential Calvin and Hobbes, I I grieved when Calvin and Hobbes stopped being printed. Bill Watterson is uh, just, he, he, he understood childhood better than any grown person, I think, in the world. He really captured it. You know, the, you know Calvin is the l- little boy, and Hobbes is his, uh, is his, pet t- is his uh, stuffed tiger. But for Calvin, Hobbes is not a stuffed tiger. T- Hobbes is a very real tiger, and it's his best friend. And so in one comic strip, he said, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm so sorry that I did it. And Hobbes suggests, well, maybe you should apologize to her. And then there's a frame with just Calvin s- sitting there. Nothing, no, no thought bubble, no talk. In the next frame, after Calvin ponders this for a minute, he says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> there is no less obvious solution. The solution is repentance. If we are truly to encounter God with us, Emmanuel, 
there's no other way to receive him than to begin with repentance. I told you at the beginning of this service, if I knew Jesus Christ was coming back at 3 o'clock today, I would be made aware of some things I'm sure that I need to repent of. We don't have to wait till 3 o'clock. Jesus Christ comes today at this table. The living Christ is present in this meal. You are about to stand before Jesus at his coming. How will that call you to repentance this morning? Where is God desiring to break up the fallow ground of our stony hearts and call us back to him? Where is the Father saying, you're lost, come home? What path have we taken that's the wrong path? Where do you need to turn around? Take your eyes off the feet, look for the blazes. Listen to the Father's voice and come home. And do works meet with repentance. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.